There are no pressing announcements other than there are snacks back there. I, I guess people found that out. They're moving from eating after to eating before, which I discourage because I don't want your full bellies listening to my preaching and praising God. You may fall asleep. <clears throat> I know, I know, I know. Yeah, how can you resist her cinnamon rolls? We have the call to worship, and the call to worship is the formal demarcation and division between the rest of life, which of course should be to the glory of God, in which God has not forgotten to be sure, but he has given us uh, six days to take care of other earthly things and things of this world, which are not sinful in themselves, but should be used to his glory. But this day is a day that we specially focus upon him. And um, and, and this day of special focus, we have a special, special focus called worship, morning and evening. Behold, bless you the Lord, all you servants of the Lord which by night stand in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands in the sanctuary and bless the Lord. The Lord that made heaven and earth bless thee out of Zion. By our hearts and heads in silent preparation for worship. Let us stand and let us sing Psalm 67a, 67a.
Amen. Let us pray. It is our prayer and hope, Lord, as we were saying in this psalm, that the nations would praise you, Lord, to the four corners of the earth, God, and worship you and fear you and with a holy fear, God. And we're thankful that this prophecy of sorts has been fulfilled, certainly in this day and age, in our own lives, God, as we are those nations and those peoples across the world outside of Israel of old that have indeed submitted to you and follow you, God. We thank you for your spirit and drawing us nigh unto you. And thank you for this day that we can be here in your special presence, Lord, seeking more grace and more strength to carry on in our calling and duties in life, God above. We pray these things in accordance to the Lord's prayer as you taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy as it was in the beginning, it is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. We have the reading of Psalm 36 inside the bulletin. Psalm 36, an oracle within my heart concerning the transgression of the wicked. There is no fear of God before his eyes. The words of his mouth are wickedness and deceit. He has ceased to be wise to do good. Your mercy, O Lord, is in the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. How precious is your loving kindness, O God. Therefore, the children of men put their trust under the shadow of your wings. For with you is the fountain of life, in your light we see light. Let not the foot of pride come against me, and let not the hand of the wicked drive me away. And so we read the first few verses, five or Four verses here of a description of the wicked and how they have no fear of God before them. There is no humility. Rather, they flatter themselves and they devise wickedness on their bed. Even in their times of relaxation and rest, they are so awashed in the sea of transgression and bitterness and wickedness against God that they want and continue to desire and devise wickedness. And then we have, in contrast, the mercy of God upon his people and his greatness and his love towards us. Uh, it's interesting here 
that uh, Psalm 36, 9, 9b, in your light, we see light, it was the model of Yale. Because they were recognizing that even in natural revelation, which is the light of God outside the Bible, we see more clearly with God's light of his revealed word. And we pray and we mourn for Yale and the other great institutions of old. And we desire that we would continue to have the light of God's revelation upon us, which is also the light of his grace and mercy. Let us come before him with prayer and thanksgiving in our hearts. Indeed, Lord, we are grateful and we are thankful, and we are aware of our sins and limitations, our foibles and our shortcomings, God, and even in our stubbornness, Lord, and at times uh, rejecting just authorities in our life, wherever that may be, God, in whatever domain of... uh, of responsibility we find ourselves in, God. So we acknowledge these sins and other sins, Lord, in violation of the fifth commandment. <clears throat> Help us, Lord, to resist such things, to acknowledge our sins, and to fight against attractions to such violations of your word and authorities and structures in our life, God, as you've given us in your natural revelation and your special revelation, God. Help us in thought, word, and deed to become more pure and holy and to submit to those who are over us, and above all, to submit to you in all that we do. We thank you, God, and praise you for your grace and goodness towards us. In spite of such shortcomings, in spite of such stubbornness at times in our lives, Lord, your grace through Christ Jesus and his blood shed for our sins is a wonder to behold. And the goodness that you've bestowed upon us in spite of our sins, in giving us godly leaders and giving us competent leaders, Lord, in those worlds and parts of the world, Lord, in which we find ourselves without Christian leaders, God, but we find ourselves nevertheless with good leaders as the world defines good, civically good, Lord, however we wish to describe that, uh, bosses, uh, unbelieving parents, Lord, perhaps, and the like, God, who still treat us well, who still lead us well, God, these are blessings from your hand. We are grateful for them, Lord. We are grateful and thankful for the world you've designed and given us, God. I mean, we learn to live in such a world and to excel in your kingdom, we pray, by your grace and mercy. We pray for our foreign missions effort, God, across this world. As we think of uh, Ukraine, our mind, Lord, it's all across the media and everywhere else. And we know of the churches in Ukraine. In particular, God, we know of the Reformed Church in the western part of Ukraine. There's some contacts there through contact of mind, God, and we're thankful. We praise, Lord, that they're well overall. We ask, God, that you would be with them and other churches of like faith and practice that we don't have contacts with in Ukraine, God, that you would protect them, Lord, from war, that you'd watch over them, give them the foodstuffs and protection they need and the travel that they need, Lord, and the help for the young and old and the infirmed and their families, God, and during this trying, difficult time in their lives, God. Preserve and protect them for they are a small uh, group of Protestants there and other parts of Eastern Europe, God. And we ask, Lord, that you would preserve and prosper them. Help us, Lord. Uh, to pray accordingly to what we know and pray for them. We pray, God, for our foreign mission efforts uh, across the world, Lord, and other places besides Europe, God, as we have the missionaries in Haiti and Africa and elsewhere, Lord, that you would be with them and strengthen them and watch over them and protect them uh, from revolutionaries and other difficulties and wars and terrorists and the like, God. We're thankful for our efforts as a small denomination to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ across the globe as best we can. Give us wisdom in allotting the finances that we have, especially in such difficult times we find ourselves in in our economy and the prices going up and resources becoming more scarce to some some degree in some areas, God, that uh, we as a denomination, as presbyteries, as local churches, God, uh, would allot the resources and the missionaries as we can 
for what we can. Our God and Savior, we pray not only for foreign missions, but for home missions as well, in particular for our own nation, Lord. We certainly desire for everyone to be saved, but may our love, like Paul's love for his own people, his own flesh and blood, be desirous as well for our own people here in America, that they would be saved, that the gospel would go out to them, Lord. It would no longer be a passing fad, perhaps, or a strangeness to them, Lord, or wrong associations of bigotry and whatever else they've been told and lied about, but Christianity, Lord, that they would hear the gospel, that you would help our churches minister to them, teach them, instruct them, give them the whole counsel of God, Lord. Help us raise up godly men as missionaries in America, Lord, to go out to the highways and byways, God, to establish a church of Jesus Christ in the countryside as well as the cities where we can, Lord. Give us wisdom in that regard as well, the allotment of our funds and finances, Lord, and that it would be used to strengthen our churches as we add more churches to our numbers, Lord, to grow in usefulness and uh, the pooling of our funds and resources for more help from one another, we pray. We thank you for our desire to expand the Church of God and the OPC in particular, Lord, here in America, as well as our prayers for others. Christian churches to do the same thing as they're able in America, God, to re-evangelize, Lord, to go over the old burned-out districts out east and everywhere else in this nation, God, to point them to Jesus Christ, to point them to the need of a Savior, to point them to repentance. May our pastors and missionaries stand firm and preach the whole counsel of God without fear and trembling. As we read about by Bullinger this morning, God, in Sunday school class, And not just preach it in the abstract, but apply it to the people where they are, God, that your spirit may bring conviction and strength and illumination to them all the more. We pray for our families and our churches, God, with, the again, this uh, unstable economy in many ways, the rising inflation and cost of foods and the like, that you'd help us uh, preserve and save money as we can, Lord, and uh, strengthen the economy, we pray. For our neighbors, certainly, God, because that is what love of our neighbor is, but especially for the household of faith for the advantage of us, Lord, that our family members, Lord, and our churches, who are poor especially, would not be unduly burdened by a weak economy and poor income and the like, God, that they would find good work, and that, Lord, we could stabilize the pricings of things, Lord, and uh, find and, and establish more and better jobs that can help families, Lord, and not just entry-level jobs anymore. And so, God, we pray for whatever we need to do uh, in terms of voting, God, to give us wisdom and our leaders in particular, God, and the business leaders and whatever else. Uh, it's very complicated, Lord, for the economy, and sometimes it seems like we have an easy solution. and can be very complicated. We just ask for your mercies because you have designed us to live in an economy, designed us to live with monies and scarce resources at times, Lord, and we have to be wise in this regard. Help us, Lord, not to become unduly worried in this regard, but rather put our trust and our cares upon you as we will hear this morning in the Word of God. We pray for all these things, Lord, for the good of the church in particular, but especially for your glorious name to be magnified upon the world. In your name alone we pray. Amen. We now have the tithes and offerings.
let us rise. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. We praise you and bless your name, God, all throughout the week and especially on this day. And give these tithes and offerings out of hearts desirous for your kingdom to expand. We pray for the usefulness, Lord, and your blessings upon them. In your name alone we pray. Amen. While we are standing, let us sing hymn 533, 
be seated. We have the reading of the Apostles' Creed inside the hymnal and the green sheet. We wanted to put all the readings onto one easily accessible place. The Apostles' Creed is on one side. Let us say it together. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. As you recall, in Sunday school class, in the sermon by Bullinger, he goes over how to read and profit from the Word of God. And one of the rules of thumb he speaks of is when reading through the Bible and something seems to contradict the Apostles' Creed or the analogy of proportion of the faith, then it's not going to do that. Because there are basic things that are consistent in the Word of God. And that's also a good thing for children and all of us to learn as there are multitude of cults today that they didn't have, although they had variations of those kind of errors, at the time of the Reformation. Uh, America is awashed in them. Let us turn to our Bibles, to 1 Peter, chapter 5. 1 Peter, chapter 5, verses 5 through 7. Let us listen attentively to the word of God, 1 Peter 5, 5 and following. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Let us pray. In these words, God, as you have spoken through us to the pen of Peter, may we be encouraged and reminded again to continue on what I believe that we are as a whole following God, the call of the life of submission, or to submit, that we must live and shall live a life of submission and humility before one another, before God Almighty, in a day and age in which everything screams against that, and screams for our pride, and screams for our self-flattering and our self-assertion, God, against your word. We pray, God, that this sermon would help strengthen us against such lies. In your name alone we pray. Amen. As I'm sure you're quite aware, submission is a dirty word in our society. It has been for a long time. To obey and follow orders is seen almost as an evil, given some of the rhetoric you hear in advertisements, the assumptions behind the movies, the books, and everything else, and people who even speak to you and our neighbors. Of course, this is often the same people who turn around and submit to someone else that they like. 
Why? Because submission is a fact of life. You cannot get around it. It's the way it is. It's how God designed this world. Submission is also, to be sure, hard on us as Christians. We struggle in varying degrees with our pride, with exalting ourselves, flattering ourselves, as we read in the psalm today, and considering ourselves more than we ought. Because of these two problems, what is around us and what is within us, we should look more carefully upon this important doctrine and what Peter thought the church dispersed across the Mediterranean needed to hear at the time. So here we have verse 5, the first part, 5a, I call it, to submit to the elders. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Submitting to the leadership, I take this text to mean. The word likewise connecting to the prior verses in which it was clearly about the office of presbyter or elder. The word presbyter means elder and can be used at times in the Bible to mean those who are older, elderly people. Uh, although in English, when I say elderly people, think someone thinks you're 70 and older or something like that. That's not what I mean by elderly. It just means someone who's older than someone else. It could be 30 and elderly. <clears throat> but clearly in the first four verses, that word presbyter is used in the sense of an office because they are appointed by the great shepherd to lead and feed the flock of God in a way other people are not to lead and feed. There are the flock of God and there are the shepherds of God or overseers or bishops also used in the text in parallel with presbyter. This word, likewise, you younger people submit yourselves to your elders. I believe the word there, elders, is the office by the connection of likewise. It is the leaders of the church, the shepherds, their duties and responsibilities were unpacked. And now the followers, he's going on to the followers, not unlike Paul, who talks about different responsibilities from the same, different parties, mutual responsibilities they have for each other. In the prior two, three chapters earlier in Peter, where he talks about responsibilities we have as members of society or sitting under the magistrates, under our bosses or masters and the like, or in the family. And so here he unpacks the other half here, not just the duties of the elders, but our duties to submit to the elders of the office, officers of the church, the leaders of the church in particular. Now, some do think, because you don't have capitalization the way we have in English, that it just means the younger people submit to the older people as a general rule, right? You're, you're respective of the elderly around you. Children are taught to respect older people in general. That could be the case. I don't think so. We'll talk about that as well. First of all, it's a little bit of background re- reminder here, as I said in the beginning. As much as society tells you submission is an evil word, of course, especially say that in the families with respect to the women, because they wish to tear down the families. All relationships are reciprocal. There is a give and take in all relationships of life. That is a responsibility of both parties, is what I mean by that, to each other. Parents to children. Children are called to obey their parents. Parents are called and commanded by the Word of God to lead, feed, and protect their children. They both have a responsibility in that relationship, a reciprocal relationship. boss and a worker, or master and slave and Peter. The bosses are called to lead, 
to pay, to provide a safe working environment, to give the tools to their workers as they need. And the workers are called in that relationship to give their time and effort and respect to their bosses. It's reciprocal. They both have a duty to each other. Not the same duty, but different duties, because it's an uneven relationship with the parent and the child. It's an uneven relationship with the boss and the worker, employer, employee. It's not equal. It's unequal. The boss has more power, and that is responsibility that comes with that power. With great power comes great responsibility, quoting Spider-Man or something. But that's a known, natural law. Even without the Bible, unbelievers for centuries, thousands of years have known that. And they expected much out of their leaders and their bosses and their kings, even if they didn't always deliver. But Americans lie to themselves and say, this is not the way things should be. And they use the rhetoric of liberty and freedom to undermine reciprocal relationships such as these. The things that we do and take for granted, even the most vocal proponent of egalitarianism still lives in a world where he or she has to submit to someone else. Relationships, as I mentioned there, those particular relationships are not equal. But even equal relationships like between friends, long-time friends, have a duty to each other to be considerate and helpful, a reciprocal duty. That if broken, can irreparably damage that relationship and they'll never be friends again. And that's to be expected. There are limits to relationships. They kill your wife, they're not going to be your best friend anymore. <laughs> and that's okay. In fact, I urge you to do that. <laughs> So there are are, are limits to these relationships as as well. All relationships have accompanying duties and responsibilities owed to the other persons. In this case, the elders, as we read, and he got into a fair amount of detail. Here, there's not a lot of detail. I'm going to give you a little detail. He just says it like it's assumed that they know what you're supposed to do to submit. The flocks have a duty to submit to the elders as much as the elders have a duty to feed and protect the flock. The younger people here, As a status, I take it as a status, not as a biological age. The language of the Bible lends to that. We have passages such as 1 Peter, where we use the language of biology, of age, to reflect the moral relationship, the spiritual relationship we have in the church of God to one another. In 1 Peter 5.1, for example, we read, Do not rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father. So they're in the church. And if an older man has sinned, he's telling Timothy here, in fact, the pastor, don't rebuke him, don't be harsh with him, but exhort him as someone who is your father. How would you treat your father? Would you just mouth off at him? Would you say, Father, please, let's consider this in the seriousness of the situation. You go off and explain that there's a sin here or an error of some sort. Younger men as brothers. You talk to a younger man, you know, just smack him around. You're a youthful idiot. What's your problem? But rather, you should treat them as though they were your brother. How would you talk to your brother? You would be a little more considerate. Yes, some people apparently smack them. And you would just sit sit them down and say, listen, brother, let's talk about this. It's a serious problem we have to deal with here. Or give them a little story. There's different ways in parts of that's wisdom and how to interact with people. These are, again, general exhortations. Older women as mothers, younger as sisters with all purity. The language of the family applied to the church, not in an absolute manner, but in a relative manner. 
and that we are called to have a little more love, a little more consideration for those who are in the household of faith and not treat them like strangers or treat them as servants or bosses, but rather the metaphor that's used is family, highlighting the call of love and patience and long-suffering. Ephesians 5.1, therefore be imitators of God as dear children. So there the word children is used to describe all of the family of God with respect to the Father of all of us, our Lord and Savior. In the language of the confession, to unpack um, another way of describing this, so the passage here, younger people, the word younger there, people can refer to the spiritual relationship with the elders, not necessarily age. But the confession talks about superiors and inferiors. The language of the confession, with respect to reciprocal relationships, unequal, unequal, uneven reciprocal relationships, right? One person has more power and authority than the other. A boss, a president, a judge. Even by age. Someone's 80 and someone's 15. Talks about superiors and inferiors. Language that's in... Like taking your nails on the chalkboard to most Americans, they don't like that. That's why I like the language, because it's that clear. (laughs) You have that kind of response, people are getting the point. The language itself is humbling. You're called young. In the case of a pastor who's younger like Timothy, if you recall that passage, he says, don't let them despise your youthfulness, that you're a younger pastor. You're still an elder with respect to even the older members of the church because you're a pastor and they are not. You're a superior as a, in that particular office compared to them. That's humbling. <clears throat> that language is there to highlight this kind of relationship that, for example, younger people, the rest of the church has towards the officers of the church. And in fact, it's a matter of reality. Just like there are reciprocal relationships everywhere and that somebody has to submit somewhere, is another way of saying that someone else is a superior to you in particulars. As I reminded my daughter as she was growing up, because I don't want her hearing, because she'll hear it, I don't want her believing the lies of the media. You can be all that you can be. Just do it. You know, all that stuff we grew up with, I don't know what the newer ones are anymore. I don't watch the commercials. All based on this idea that you can do what anything that you want if you put your mind to it. We're all equally superior. It could be even more superior if we just try hard enough. It's untrue to the nth degree. People have limits. Somebody's always smarter than you. I remind my daughter not to show her that she's dumb, but someone's quicker, someone's wiser, someone's more talented. Somewhere, at some time, in some context. Bob is my superior when it comes to Putting a house together. <laughs> Putting up a wall. And only pride says, well, I can do whatever Bob... Bob's got so many... He's got decades on me. He knows all the shortcuts and everything else. Only American pride, just pride in general, says you can be all that you can... Whatever, you can just do it. You cannot. I'm not even going to try. I don't pretend I, I know what I'm doing with that stuff. I know a little bit. I'll do some things, but why? No, he's my superior. And of course, it's relative and different. Over time, that will change. Maybe I'll know something a little more than him on just one little tiny little thing at one instance in life. But everything else on that topic of wood and construction and everything else, he's just going to run in circles around me. 
In other areas of life, you're better and smarter than someone else. More experience. Experience has a lot to do with that. It's just the way it is. And if we deny reality, even with our language, so I like the language of superior and inferior, it reminds us, it humbles us and says, I don't know enough. I am inferior when it comes to these matters. Is what we are called to do. It's a fact of life. American egalitarianism will just keep lying, and it's just going to get worse, unfortunately, and they just keep pushing these things, and I want to push back, and I want to equip you guys to stick with what you know to be true. You are an inferior in many ways, but you're also superior in other ways. I'll never be a good mom. I'm, frankly, a terrible mother. We laugh about that with respect to bio, uh, biology, but it's true with respect to training and uh, as I preached them a sermon in Sunday school class, reminded you the psychology of women is different too. Their sympathy and empathy levels are different than men on average. I cannot empathize the way a typical woman can. And that's fine. I'm happy with that. Let them do the womanly job. So, now I'm going to apply this here to the aged before I get to the elders as such. Those older than you, if some people take it that way. <clears throat> Inferior in age, implying all experience is the idea here, if that's the case. And it certainly is the case elsewhere in the Bible and by natural revelation. By babies to children are younger, and the, the children are elders to the babies. That's what the language would be. Children to adolescents or young adults, young adults to adults, and adults to the older adults. Experience makes a big difference. In that sense, you should submit to someone who's older than you in terms of respecting them, uh, honoring them, listening to them, but doesn't necessarily mean that by listening means that you have to obey them. They're not your father, they're not your mother per se. A random older Christian cannot tell you what to do. And yet, you should listen attentively even if you don't agree or even if you won't follow with their advice. That's a way of submitting. The idea here of the younger submit yourself to the elders is not whatever a random adult Christian tells a young child to do, they should do. That's not what he's saying here. Because again, this is just a general admonition with the assumption that you know how to apply it given your different relationships in life. Because he assumes those different relationships in the prior two chapters. He, he specified them. A master or servant is different than you with a magistrate. It's different with you and your husband or your husband and your wife. He doesn't have to sit here and unpack this, but people are confused and that's how they approach the Bible. We talked a little bit about that in Sunday school class. It's a wrong way of understanding the Bible. That's not what he means. And just when you take it that way, you can realize on the surface of it, that's ridiculous. Obviously, he's not saying any, ra- any random older person could tell a younger person what to do. Come to my house and clean my floor, please. What? i got to go to school today. No, the Bible says in 1 Peter 5, 5, Christians do this. That's why I point this out. You kind of, kind of laugh. I'm glad you laugh because you, you get the point. That's not the intent of the Holy Spirit in using this language. But a general application to say, you know where you are in life, you need to, you need to submit. <clears throat> now, with respect to the elders, in particular, the officers, the ruling and teaching officers of the church, not deacons. They don't rule per se, although you should submit to them in their domain. <clears throat> they have a duty to warn you if they catch you in sin, to warn you away from sin. But that does not mean they have the right to run your family They cannot tell your kids what to have for breakfast, what time to go to bed. But of course, if you're not feeding your kids at all, they're going to probably say something. (laughs) So there's a respect with respect to, there's a respect, a proper respect to different responsibilities. The ruling elders, 
The teaching elders of the church are not your parents biologically. They don't have that responsibility. It's a different domain, although there's overlap and responsibility in the sense, like I said, if your parents are doing something wicked to the children and and you know about it, it's not just the ruling elders and the teachers, but even you can warn them if it's bad enough. So although we like to talk about sphere sovereignty, they're not airtight spheres, right? There's overlap because there's mutual responsibility and reciprocal uh, relationships there. And the elders can't do that. But in matters of good church order, you are called to submit to the leaders of the church. It's the way the church is run, and it's not explicit in the Bible. The explicit part's obvious. They teach, you should listen, you should come to church. I'm not going to go over that per se. But this is the matters in which, again, I've run across in my experience, and I think it's a temptation in American churches, again, because of our strong independent streak, to sit there and say, well, the, you know, the elder can't tell me to go to church at 9 in the morning. Well, actually, they can. That's part of their responsibility under the fifth commandment, the rubric of the fifth commandment, right? Honor your father and mother is not just biological fathers and mothers, but all fathers and mothers, all leadership. And they have the, the calling and duty of God to assemble the church, to worship him, and they have to choose a good time for the bulk of us, given our circumstances, situation. That responsibility is given to the session, and they can call you to church, and they do. And that's why you're here. That's one of the things. Maintaining good order in church service. Uh, don't be shooting off at the mouth. They'll talk to you in the middle of service. You need to be quiet and listen. Things like that. Maintaining a safe building. Warning kids from playing on the railing. They can stop them and say, hey, don't do that. That's dangerous. In fact, as I think we all know, not just the officers, but any of you can do that if it's dangerous enough. We all have a responsibility in that sense, to be sure. As I said, setting the time of worship, good order and worship. And of course, their leadership of the church is not absolute. They cannot tell you to sin. They cannot command you to sin. That's always the case. I told my daughter when she was younger, you do not submit to lies. You do not submit to commands to sin. Your parents cannot command you to sin. We don't teach that. Ironically, the wicked world that we're finding ourselves in, they believe you can command people to sin. They want to command people to sin. Even though they accuse us of doing that, you evil patriarchs and believing your husband runs the family and everything else, and blah, 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 rumble, rumble, rumble. Yeah, okay. What kind of law did you pass recently? Oh, that's right. So, yes. Second point, submit to each other. 5B. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. Be submissive to one another. Again, is that shorthand for a, a deeper, longer idea? Or are we supposed to, quote, take it literally? Right? Again, any random Christian should submit to a 10-year-old Christian. Because it says submit to one another. Feminists use this text this way. They do that in Ephesians 5. Again, in churches, in conservative churches. Well, the husband should listen to the wife. Of course the husband should listen to the wife. At the end of the day, however, where does the buck stop? With the man. Clearly, he's not saying just randomly submit to one another to any you know an adult submitting to a child. You give the absurd absurdion of the text, the absurdity of the text, then you get it. You're like, okay, that's obviously not what it means. It's obviously not what it means. And yet again, feminists do this, or soft egalitarianism, I call them in the Reformed churches. Moderates. I like to play with these texts. It's obviously not what it means at all. It's rather Shorthand language of specifying each relationship. Whatever relationship you are in, submit. 
to the extent that you are called to submit in that reciprocal relationship. It's a letter, brothers and sisters. It's not a systematic theology where he gives all the nuance. But a letter, and he talks like how we talk. I bought a new car. Really? What year is it? Well, it's a 2020. Dude, it's 2021. It's not a new car. You lied to me. Really? Is that how we talk our normal language? No. The Bible's like that too. So, we're called, in other words, to be submissive to one another to the extent that we have that responsibility. And you may not. If you're a boss, you shouldn't be submitting to the workers. <laughs> It'd be kind of throwing things on its head. It causes chaos in the company. you got to have a boss. You have to have a leader in society. You have to have a leader in the family. That's the way God designed things. Clothed with humility. It's the only way submission works, right? And clothed with humility. It's a beautiful language there. Not unlike Paul who talks about that, clothing, putting on righteousness and putting off unrighteousness like a, a shirt or a cloak as they wore back then. What is humility? Obviously, it's the opposite of pride. Humility is knowing your place in life. And, of course, acting upon that knowledge. Because it starts with the knowledge and the acceptance of your place in life. You know your limitations. You know your weaknesses. And you don't presume to be something you are not. Prideful people flatter themselves with thinking that they have greater ability, greater smarts, greater talent than they actually have. That's the problem that we run across in spades in America. Maybe the rest of the world, I guess, but people have different degrees of different types of sins, and that's what I think we have a lot of. In God's kingdom, what are you? As we read in Ephesians 5.1. A child of God. And therefore, in that language of being a child is a language of submission, of lowliness, of acceptance, of reliance upon him as greater than you, as stronger than you, as wiser than you, as someone that you should follow and submit to. In the family, if you are a son or a daughter, you are a child to your parents. Even at age 50, you're still called to respect your parents, even if you don't have to obey their commands anymore because you're not living under their house. If you're a father, you have responsibility to submit to the church and the like. In society, of course, it's harder to talk this way because we have this myth of democracy that is the myth of democracy, the type of democracy that says everyone's omnicompetent and we all can vote if, as long as you show some level of competence. And it's just not true. Have the ability to vote. Not a lot of people, you can all just think of right now, you're like, you should not vote. Sorry, you're just not competent. You don't know the issues. You don't have the ability to know the issues. You don't have the training to know the issues. It's simply all there is to it. There's a reason why our forefathers didn't have a democracy but a republic, and a limited republic in that regards. And the people who voted was not every, every Tom, Dick, and Harry on the street. We are limited in knowledge. We are limited in experience. We are limited in time and space. It's what it means to be human, to be finite. And so... Also, one of the dangers that fights against humility, a proper humility, on the other hand, to, to flip it, is to recognize even in politics, we're not all equally competent. and We have to be quiet on things and to say, I really don't know. Because again, in the American scene, the push is there to have everyone have an opinion about everything. I feel it on myself. I'm quite aware of it, <laughs> as I'm preaching to myself here. But humility says, 
I really, I just don't know. I don't know the rest of world politics. Where have I been? I just can't keep on top of that stuff, let alone my local issues and my theological issues or whatever else you're dealing with in life. Some can. Retirees can read a lot more than non-retirees. That's good. That's an advantage they have. They should use that advantage in God's providence to get on top of things and learn things and teach the rest of us. We are humble. We come to them and listen. Someone who's shown experience, someone who's shown a good track record or whatever the case is. That's humility. He bases it uh, upon it. He moves to a general proposition from Proverbs 3.34 here. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Surely he scorns the scornful but gives grace to the humble. It's one translation here. That is, God resists the proud and that's axiomatic. Everyone is proud outside of Christ. Proud in the context of rejecting God and his superiority. They don't know their place in life with respect to God. They may not be proud in other regards. They may know their limitations. They may, we experience them. We have family members like them. They're very humble. They're like, I don't really know much about this. Could you help me, Daddy? I don't really know much of this. Could you help me, my, my, my best friend or whoever you are? That's true. They may be humble in that respect. But with respect to God, they are proudful. That's how the Bible describes them. And it makes sense because of humility is knowing your place in this world. Proudness and pride of heart means you're not knowing it and you're rejecting it and you want to be something that you are not. And they are not above the Creator, God Almighty. Now, of course, Christians can be proud. That's why he has this verse written to Christians. (laughs) Don't be proudful. Don't put yourself beyond and think you're better than where you are in life if the case is not the case at all. Because sometimes, of course, on the flip side, you may be better where you are in life, but God's just telling you to wait and be patient. People don't recognize your talent. Sometimes that happens. You just got to be patient. Other times, no. But here, they obviously had a problem. Maybe they didn't want to submit to the presbyters of the church. Who are these presbyters? Because some of these presbyters, as we read before, maybe were problematic. They were a little lusting after money. They were taskmasters, difficult teachers in the church. And they're like, why would I want to submit to these people? Maybe that's the context. We don't know, but you certainly warns the elders against that. And here on the flip side, he says, you should submit submit to these elders, or here, submit in general. Whatever relationship we have, we are called to be humble, to acknowledge our limitations, because God resists those who will not acknowledge their limitations. God will punish them. Of course, Peter knows the danger of pride. And he the one that shot off his mouth, I would never forsake you. I know who I am. He didn't know himself very well. He was quick to assume when he should not have. And God gives grace to the humble. Those humbled by God's Spirit, to be sure. Those humbled by their own sin, perhaps. Grace to those already humbled and in submission because of God's grace already working in them. The calling here clearly means that Christians can be proudful. Christians can reach and extend beyond their ability and place and calling in God's kingdom. And they ought to repent of that and go back to their limitations. Go back to their calling and responsibilities and go no further. So Proverbs here, as we read it, is both a warning and an encouragement. The warning, God resists the proud. The encouragement is God gives grace to the humble. And he moves from there to the general admonition of verses 6 through 7, the third point, submit to God. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your cares upon him. Humble yourself, stop thinking of yourself more than what you are. 
thinking yourself better than what you are, those are the dangers of pride. But rather to have a state of the heart or frame of the mind that is honest with yourself. It says, I can't do this. I don't know enough here. I am limited this way. This is the responsibilities God has given me in his kingdom, and I should submit to those responsibilities and do them. It begins with the state of the heart and works its way out into our actions to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, both in his providence, that he may exalt you in due time. There will be an exaltation, and that will be ultimately at the resurrection. The vindication of us submitting to God, his ways, and his word, and his kingdom. The right kind of submission, of course, godly submission, even though we even submit to ungodly rulers. Then he moves from here to an interesting thing that doesn't seem related. Casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Maybe their resistance to submission was because they had cares in this world, they were worried about something, and they wanted to control the matter. I don't know. The idea here of care is not caring for yourself, right? You've got to groom yourself, you've got to eat, you've got to take a shower and things like that, but rather excessive care, worrying and fretting over perhaps the coming persecution. He talks about persecution in Peter. That's coming. Here it is. Don't be overly concerned about that. Trust God. Put your concerns to him. Rest in his providence. There is a time to prepare for the future. If a storm comes, you better get some food, get some warm clothing, get inside, and be safe. That's not undue care or excessive care or worry or fretting. That's proper responsibility. But if you treat a three-day storm like it was World War III, that's undue care and excessive worry and fretting. It has to be proportional to the matter at hand. If it's disproportional and blown out of proportion, then you have strong evidence that you have fretting and excessive worry upon you, or maybe you're just misinformed. Whatever the excessive care looks like, Peter wants to squash it. It is a burden too large to carry for any one of us. It sits on your chest, slowly crushing you, even to the point of panic. But we should take our worries and our anxieties and cast them upon our Lord, for he is our shepherd, who does indeed care for us. For he has given us one another. The leaders of the church to help you to the extent that they can. These are things in his providence that can help you overcome your excessive cares and fretting upon this world. When you cast your care upon him, it may mean submitting to the person above you to take care of you. And that can be hard. Age comes upon us. I'm now 50. And I'm going to have to face a time in which I have to listen to my daughter and her husband and know my limitations. That's casting my care upon God. To cast my care upon God is not some weird charismatic idea. Well, I really feel holy and I've I've just given it to the Lord. It has the actions of submission. He kept talking about submission, humility, submission, humility. And he says, put your cares upon God. I trust God. I trust his word. He says, then submit. Submit to my providence. Submit to the leader I gave over you. Again, in the context of a godly leader, obviously who's going to take care of you, whoever he may be, your husband or whatever else. Romans 8.28 comes to mind with this passage. 
Romans 8.28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. God is in control. Our Lord and Savior is master of the universe. Do what he calls you to do, to submit and leave the results and your cares in his hands. Let us pray. We praise you, God. We lift up your name on high before the nations in the world, Lord, that we trust in you, that we submit to you, and we submit, Lord, to one another to the extent that we are called to that office. We throw our cares upon you, God, our worries and our anxieties, knowing that you are in charge, that you've given us, Lord, your word and promise that all things work together for our good. In your name alone we pray. Amen. Let us stand and sing hymn 536, 536. of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be upon you all. Amen.